So here we are today, and I'm really excited about the sermon today, the surprising usefulness of a garbage can. How about that? Surprising usefulness of a garbage can. So in your anticipation for that, we invite you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. 2 Timothy 2, 20. There are Bibles there in the pew if you would like to turn in those, or you can take them, and you feel free to take that home with you, or if a friend needs a Bible, take it to them. encourage you to do that, and we will be reading from, again, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. It goes like this. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes, and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Thank you, Pastor Stephen. I just want to echo the awesomeness of Monday night with Celebrate Recovery. It was just, just a great um, healing atmosphere for people to come and to share their brokenness and their, just their stuff and bring it before everybody and everybody responding with acceptance and love and, and healing. It was, just, it was just a great time and I'm really excited about this ministry moving forward and what it can mean. I, I, I believe that this ministry will literally save some lives and I was talking to a few people today that told me of the stories of family members and friends that they know have lost their lives because of the opioid crisis and, and other uh, diseases and addictions. So we are just so thrilled about this, uh, this ministry. Um, I was reflecting, just having such a great time with it, I was reflecting on my time here. I, some of you may not know, I haven't even been here quite a year, and I was reflecting uh, this time, about this time last year, I was uh, faced with a really major decision as to whether I should come and if God's calling me to come and be one of your pastors. And so uh, I was uh, really laboring over that decision and really uh, struggling with, with what God wanted me to do. And I can remember that time as if it was uh, yesterday. I was thinking about uh, some of the things that I would say in the conversations I had with Pastor Steve and some of the things that uh, spoken to with the elders. And one of the common things that they had asked, which you would expect in this kind of situation, is uh, tell us about your call story. Tell us about when God called you to be a pastor. And so the story went like this. I was a freshman at Bowling Green State University and I was extremely frustrated with God because I did what every good college student would do once they start college is completely forget what they're supposed to do in life. And they would change majors one after the other. And it only took one semester for me to completely dismantle everything I had planned to do when I was going into college and be left with this lostness and this questioning, what am I supposed to do in life? Because this is the time I've got to figure this out because I'm paying money. My parents are paying money for this college. I've got to figure this out right now so I can know what classes to take so I can get a degree and go on with, with life. And so I was really, really frustrated. 
And my frustration boiled to a point where on my way to class, I was walking to class and I was praying and I just started yelling at God. Now, I wasn't yelling out loud because that would have been awkward, but I was, in my mind, I was yelling at God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And the few times I really believe that God spoke to me, I, I, I feel like he spoke to me in that moment. And he spoke to me with a scripture that we find in Matthew chapter six. And I know it was God because I don't remember reading the scripture. I don't remember where it came from. It just came and it hit me like, uh, like a brick wall. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. See, I didn't get an answer. I just got this one major voice saying, chill out, <laughs> relax. I've got this. And over the next three weeks, it just became sort of confirmed in my heart. That, that I was supposed to go into pastoral ministry or full-time vocational uh, ministry. I want to talk to you today about the topic of, of purpose. And I know that all of you have a sense of, of call, and I'll get to that in a little bit, but, and I know some of you might have your own stories about how my, God might have spoken to you, or maybe you don't have, or haven't had that experience, and you're kind of, well, where's... You know, if there is a God, why isn't he, why isn't he speaking to me? But I, I, I want to share with you this idea of purpose, not because you might have something in common with when God spoke to me, because your story's different and, and, and your call might be different, but one of the things I think we hold in common, this universal experience when it comes to our faith, is that crisis point. It's that question hanging over our head, what is this next step? What am I supposed to do? What is the direction for my life? And as people of faith, we're saying, what's God's direction for my life? What is God saying about where I should go, what I should do, who I should marry, what job I should take, what career I should have? And we sometimes boil to this point of frustration because some of you, I think, have probably been waiting a long time trying to figure out what God's trying to tell you to do. And I think this is a universal experience because I've, I've spoken to people and I've counseled with people from all different walks of life and they have the same common experience. I've talked to teenagers wrestling with their own identity figuring out who, who they are and who God made them to be, and they're really, really struggling. I've talked to college students or, or even uh, people that just graduated college and are like, okay, now that that's over with, what in the world do I do with my degree? Or where, where, where does God want me to, to go in life? I've talked to middle-aged folks that have been doing the same job for five, 10, 15, 20 years, and they look back and they say, what in the world am I doing? Am I even making a difference? What, what is this? I've been busying myself with, with all of this work day in and day out, and I look back now and I'm like, is this just a waste of time? And then a, a side question to that is, and is it too late for me to even change right now? And I've even talked to elderly folks, people who have been givers and doers their whole life and suddenly make this really difficult life transition where suddenly now they are dependent and they need the help of other people. And many of them uh, living now in, in nursing homes and in facilities where other people have to sort of take care of them. It's a really difficult decision. And counseling with folks in that stage of life and they're saying, 
I'm, I'm, I'm getting close to the end. Does God even have a purpose for me anymore? Can I contribute to life or society in, in any meaningful way anymore? So we have this, this, this common experience And even when those of us that sit and sort of wonder and question and wrestle and struggle with all of this, I think this is such a universal uh, crisis or experience that we all have that even the people that seem to have it all together, they struggle with this too. You know the people I'm talking, you have those people in your mind, people that sort of have it all together, they, you know, because they just seem like they know who they are and, and where they're going. But even those people, I think, struggle with it. One of my favorite authors and and speakers is Brene Brown, and she does a lot on the subject of shame, and it's very research-based and does a lot of interviewing of people and develops these ideas of of, uh, related to shame, and it's very revealing in terms of the human condition. And and one of the things she was able to do is is connect, um, connect this fear of just being ordinary this fear of just being plain, this fear of having no meaning or contribution to this world, this, this fear that we all wrestle with to narcissism and the people that sort of make it all about themselves. Here's what she says. She says, the overwhelming message in our culture today is that an ordinary life is a meaningless life unless you're grabbing a lot of attention and you have lots of Twitter followers and Facebook fans and and know everything that you know. I use the same, I use the shame-based fear of being ordinary as my definition for narcissism. I definitely see it in younger generations where people fear they are not big enough. No matter how happy and fulfilling their small, quiet life is, they feel it must not mean very much because it's not the way people are measuring success, which is just terrifying. This fear of being ordinary in this measuring scale of value and purpose is what Paul speaks to in the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is a letter, just like 1 Timothy, uh, to this young pastor, this young guy named Timothy, who he sent out into the ministry. And in this piece, he's addressing the subject of, of the fear of being ordinary. He says, in a large house, there are utensils. Um, and different uh, versions of the Bible might have different words. Not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for special use, some for the ordinary. Now scholars, it's kind of fun, have have picked apart a couple of these different words and it gives us a whole uh, new breadth of of meaning when when we look at it. This word utensils can also mean vessels. Vessels, you know, the things that you put things in. And because they're listing all of these different elements of gold and silver and wood and of clay, there's really a limited amount in the ancient world of utensils that were made out of all of these different elements, and that was pottery or the, the vessels. And so you can imagine, boy, the, the people that bring out the gold and the silver, you know, that's kind of that's fancy. And we bring those out when we invite honored guests over for dinner to show, to, to show them honor and to reveal that, hey, we, we, got some, we have some fancy things here. And then, then we have 
the, the wood and the clay vessels or pottery that we just sort of keep away in the, in the kitchen for the, the ordinary things. And this word ordinary, this word ordinary can also mean um, degraded. Degraded. And you get this idea, um, especially when you understand the ancient Greek a little bit, you get this idea that what Paul might be talking about here in terms of the ordinary use made of wood and clay could possibly be a trash can. And you see the symbolism. You see the, the, the difference that Paul is making here in this letter, the images that are there. Here you have the gold and the silver platters that you take out for the most honored guests. What you serve with food, or maybe you just show off to show that you have gold and, and silver platters. But it's that those vessels, those things that you bring out for the most honored guests. And then on, in contrast to that, you have the wood and the clay vessels where you just throw your trash in. The things that hold the things that you don't want anymore. The trash, the, the garbage. And he's making this, he's setting up this image to reveal a system of value that we have in this world, that we have in our society. That, that we have some people that are gold and silver platter folks, and then we have, you know, our wooden clay people. We have the, the gold and the silver kind of people that we pay attention to, that we listen to, that we revere and we hold up with honor, and we value them by giving them money and respect and attention. And then we have the wood and the clay folks that are invisible that we don't pay attention to, that we cast to the outside, to the margins, and that are, by and large, replaceable. And that's the system of this world that we've created. And we see it in business. There are people that earn the big bucks and the people that are replaceable. We see it in society, the people that we hold up and pay attention to and revere, and the people that are ignored and invisible, and they are replaceable. We set this system of value up in all different spectrums of life, and what's happening here in, 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 in the church that, that Paul is addressing to Timothy is that this value system, this, this perspective, this hierarchy has leaked also into the church. That the people that give the most are the ones that get the most attention. The ones that have the most gifts are polished in their way of speaking. Those that seem to have more roles and responsibility, we lift them up and, and hold them up high and pay attention to them while the rest of them are replaceable. When we abide by, when we live out this value system that our world creates, there are all kinds of different dysfunctions and, and unhealthy responses that can happen. And one of them I think we could all identify with is coveting. Coveting. It's the thing that the other person has that I really would like. Or the person that I would like to become. It's coveting. I'm a child of the 90s, and when I was growing up, we all wanted to be like Mike. That's what the commercials told us. 
In fact, um, there wasn't a time in playing basketball with my friends growing up in my childhood where someone didn't stick their tongue out when they were going up for a layup like this. Because why? Because that's what Mike did. And people wanted to be like Mike. You guys ready for a throwback? We have our Gatorade commercial. I think it's 1991. Be like Mike. Check it out. Apologies for the uh, terrible image of Michael Jordan shooting on the Cavaliers during that one time. The good news is I'm pretty sure Mike would rather be like LeBron at this point in time, so I think that debate's pretty much covered. I don't even debate that. But the funny thing is, and the brilliance of the advertising, is that no one was like Mike back then, right? I mean, no one had that kind of athleticism. No one was able to play at the level that Michael Jordan was, was playing. No one could be Mike. But somehow we got in this idea that we wanted to, to be like Mike. That's what coveting is. It's trying to be the person that we're just not. It's trying to have the things that we just, we just don't have. And we fight and we try and we, we wish that we had those things that the other person had, but, you know, we, we just don't. We see where the, the frustration might, might come out of. I'm a first-time homebuyer. When we moved here, we were first-time homebuyers. And we were really excited about our home. We love our neighborhood and all of that. But just like every first-time homebuyer, you buy the home and you get in there and you realize, oh, this wasn't uh, exactly you know, the kind of put-together home that we thought that, that it would be. And so I catch myself driving on my way to church, passing everyone else's houses, thinking to myself, I bet you they don't have problems we don't have. Bet you they, they don't have insulation issues. Bet you they don't have, oh, wouldn't it be nice if I could just live in that kind of house, that newer build that doesn't have all of those, those problems. I think we all do this. Sometimes we don't even realize we're doing it. But we look at those other people and we look at those other things and we say, well, what if? Life would be better if we had those things. Life would be better if we were more like those people. Do you catch yourself doing this? Do you catch yourself wanting the things that someone else has? So Paul addresses this. He says in, in verse uh, 21, chapter 2 in 2 Timothy, he says, all who cleanse themselves of the things I've mentioned will become special utensils. All of them, even the clay and the wood ones, even the garbage cans, will become special utensils 
dedicated and useful to the owner of the house, ready for every good work. You see, the church was arguing, just like you read the Gospels and some of the issues that Jesus' disciples had, you know, they were arguing oftentimes, who is the greatest? They were going through that same issue. Who is the greatest? Who is the most gifted? Who should have all the attention? And Paul's saying, all of them, if they cleanse themselves of these things, will become special utensils. You see, purpose, in, just like beauty, purpose is all in the eyes of the beholder. Um, one day, I came home from work a couple years ago, and sitting in our garage was a set of old windows. You know, the paint was peeling, and these windows had contraptions on them, really, really old. I'm thinking, whoa, what in the world is this? So I went and I talked to my wife, Amanda, and I'm like, what are, what are these windows? She says, aren't they great? Well, it depends. What are they for? You see, because, you know, we, we have windows, and they're working right now, and these don't look all that great. She said, yeah, I found them on the side of the road. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I, I, don't, I don't know if I understand a little bit. She said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to fix them up. I'm going to make it, and they're going to be part of our, our decorations. And I was like, you know, they were thrown on the side of the road for a, for a purpose, you know. On, on, there was a reason for that. But she had a vision for how she could clean these up and put them to a, a certain use. That I didn't see it, but she saw it. And that's how God sees us. It's all in the eye of the beholder. I don't go to the mall too often because I get really frustrated, you know, Maybe you guys can, can identify with this a little bit. You know, I go in these clothing stores and I look at the jeans in these clothing stores and like jeans are kind of getting, you know, they're up there like 30, 40. You could, you could spend 100, 150, you could spend more money than that even on a pair of jeans. And you know what I noticed? These expensive jeans, you pay a lot of money, they got holes in them. <laughs> they're all ripped up. And I thought, man, I could do that. I could take, you know, whatever cheap pair of jeans, I could tear a hole in them and sell them for hundreds of dollars. But why do they do that? Because people buy them. People see something in those holy jeans. And I'm not talking about righteous. If that was the case, then my socks would be really blessed. So what is it? It's, it's all in the eye of the beholder. And God made you with purpose. Did you know that? God, I know it's cliche. Look, I, we talk about purpose all the time as, as Christians. God made you with a plan, and God made you with a purpose. Back in the, in, in the early on in the Bible, in, in the first couple chapters of Genesis, many of you know, it's the creation story. When God first made people, and God made everything, and then God made people. And here's what he says in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 15. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. He says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to what? To till and to keep it. So as soon as God made the man, he gave him a job. 
He gave him a task, he gave him a responsibility, he gave him a purpose. And it's not just to say we should all be gardeners, okay? This is to say that God designed us specifically with a purpose in mind. He gave us a purpose. And it's God's purpose, not our own. It's, it's God's purpose working through us. And so part of what it means to be a person of faith is figuring all of that out, which we're back then to the question mark, God, what do you want me to do? And oftentimes when we think of God's will, we often see it in more of a constricted viewpoint. Most of us think about what I'll call God's circumstantial will. God, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? What job do you want me to take? What career do you want me to have? Who should I marry? What should I do? And we're looking for this blueprint. We're looking for this set of directions, turn by turn, where if God just said, if you just tell me, I'll go do it, right? And we get frustrated because we sometimes don't hear that or, or know what it means. And, and I don't want to water that down at all because sometimes, you know, we read in the Bible, it says, the Bible says we have to love like God loves. Okay, but sometimes that's not so easy, is it? Some people aren't that lovable, if we're honest, right? Sometimes we don't even know what it means to love in particular circumstances. It's complicated. It's difficult to know what that exactly means. So I don't want to just, I, I just don't want to sweep that under the rug and make it seem overly simplistic. But oftentimes that's how we view God's will. We spend so much angst over those specific things, the circumstantial will of God. God what do you want me to do? But what we often neglect and what we often uh, cast aside is something that I'll call God's intrinsic will. Where God's circumstantial will will say, God, what do you want me to do? But God's intrinsic will asks the question, God, who do you want me to become? Instead of asking to change the circumstances and the environment around us, it is the question we first ask God, how can you change me? How can you mold and shape me? What kind of person are you calling me to be? At what point, God, am I not yet as Christ-like as I should be? How am I changing? And this is the question that we often overlook. This is the question we often don't start with. And yet, it's Paul that's saying to Timothy, he said, those of you that cleanse yourselves of these things will become special utensils of God. That scripture that I talked to you about that, that God really put in my heart before I was called to be a pastor, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. The scripture just before that, Jesus is talking about worrying, people that worry a lot. And he said, don't worry. He says, seek first his kingdom, his, his ways, his, his, his purposes. Seek first his, his kingdom and his righteousness, that right standing, that that, that, that righteous, that purity within our hearts and our lives. Seek first his will, his, his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all those other things will be added to you as well. So don't worry. God will take care of all the rest of the stuff. What is God doing in you? How is God molding and shaping you? God's intrinsic will. And when God when we focus on that, when we focus on the cleansing of our hearts and allow God to mold and to shape us, it really is the first step of simply making sure that it is God's work 
that is within us. Because I can struggle all day long when I figure out what, you know, I'm trying to figure out what God wants me to do. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? But some, some of these things have a timeline, don't they? Like, we got to make a decision. So we just sort of, all right, well, you know, it's like throwing darts to a dartboard. I guess I'll try this. God, hope you bless in this one, right? And we struggle with that. But we don't really question as much about the kind of person that God wants us to become. You see, when we focus on God's intrinsic will, we place ourselves in such a way where we're asking God to be the forefront. We're asking God to be the one that, that works within us. You see, it's not us doing a set of directions. It's not a, a to-do list or a task list. It's not turn-by-turn directions. It is God that does the work through us. God does it. God does it. And he does it through us. Paul's writing a letter to the Corinthians as well. And in 2 Corinthians, this is the way he says it. He says, therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might dwell in me. Therefore, I am content, (laughs) content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. It's God and God's work, God's doing that is within us. So here's what I want to offer you, and if there's anything you take away, I pray it would, it would be this, that a clean heart and a willing spirit will lead to the surprise of God's work in, around, and through you. I'll say it again. A clean heart and a willing spirit will lead to the surprise of God's work in, around, and through you. And I love this word surprise, and I wish it was more a part of our faith language because very few people are surprised about about their own plans coming into fruition. But when something comes out of nowhere, if something comes from a different source, then we respond with surprise. We respond with awe. We respond with wonder. We respond with, whoa. Okay, I didn't make this up, guys. We respond with, you guys would never believe what God did. (laughs) Surprise. We weren't expecting it because it wasn't a part of our plans. But God did it. And man, I didn't see that one coming. A clean heart and a willing spirit will lead to the surprise of God's work in, around, and through you. So the task before us is not so much about our ability, it's about our availability. It's not so much about how able you are, but how available you are. I was counseling once with a woman who was getting up there in age and she was living in a nursing home, family was far away, and 
she agonized over this new stage of life, and she kept questioning, Pastor, what purpose do I have here? I'm just sitting here in this nursing home every day. What, what, what am I supposed to do? And my first thought was, well, I don't know. I'm not in a nursing home. <laughs> and I said, well, okay, well, let's, let's take a step back for a second. Because I really, I really believe that if you have a breath, you have a purpose. So let's start there. Tell me, like, what, what's happening in your life? Tell me about some different things. Like, where, where do you experience God, you know, working? Tell me. I don't know. Well, think, think a little bit more about it. She says, well, you know, I really love to pray for people. You know, I pray for you, Pastor. <laughs> Thanks. I pray for these people and these people and these people. And you know what, Pastor? Sometimes I'll just wake up in the middle of the night because I feel like I got to pray for people. So I just wake up and I start praying for them. And you know what, Pastor? It's kind of funny. When I pray for these people, it's amazing. I pray for the people in my, my nursing home. And guess what? They come into my room. They wheel themselves into my room the very next day. And you know, it's just amazing. Then they start sharing stuff with me. Like they, they talk about their fears and they talk about their, their insecurities and they, they talk about all the stuff that, you know, that, that I'm going through too. And I just sit there and listen, you know, but they just talk about their lives to me. And you know, Pastor, it's, I gotta be honest with you, I'm a little tired because they just keep coming in one by one and everyone wants to just share their life, dump their life story on me. And I just listen, but I pray for them and I listen and I pray, pray for them. And I said, why are you worried about your purpose? (laughs) Don't you see what's happening? You just made yourself available. And look at what God is doing. What does it look like to be made available? And Paul describes that as the cleansing of the heart. And what that means is that we get out all of those distractions you know, we talked about coveting, and coveting is one of those distractions. We're so focused and we're so zeroed in on what other people have and what, who other people are that we often don't even come to recognize what God is doing within us. Cleanse yourself of these things. And then just simply be ready. Have a willing spirit. Dedicate yourself. And just see what God does, because it, it's God's work that is within you. And I've come to realize over time, as I feel like maybe I've, I've matured in my faith, that the more detail I can be with this, the more I see God working. About this time, um, last year and earlier, I was really struggling. I was really questioning. I was really trying to figure out, God, what are you doing here? Like, what, what do you want me to do? What do you, who do you want me to, to be? And in the midst of that, that struggling and that, and that wrestling, I decided, you know, instead of just, you know, treading water every day, that I was going to look at my calendar when I prayed every morning, and I was going to specifically target things that I know what was coming up during that day, and asking if if God would show up and do something amazing. Could be the most ordinary thing, having coffee with folks, you know, um, having a conversation, going through the, the, the bulletin, whatever it might be, stopping for gas. 
I, if I knew I was going to do it, I was gonna start praying for those specific things that maybe God would do something amazing even beyond the ordinary that that event actually was. It was crazy. Some of the things that would, that would pop up, and some of them weren't even just this grand, magnificent type of experiences. Some of it, but some of them were so simple and so meaningful that I didn't even know about until later. Someone said, you know when you said that? It's meant so much to me. What are those things each and every day? Even if you're questioning and, and struggling with the big picture of, of where God might be taking you, what are those things every day, that, that those little opportunities that God has placed in each and every day that you might have? I wonder, as ordinary as those things are, I wonder what God could do with those things. Sometimes for me, it's just waking up and saying, hello, you're dad today. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that in and of itself, God can do amazing things. What are those ordinary things? What are those ordinary tasks? What are those ordinary encounters that normally we just forget about? That with enough prayer and targeted prayer, who knows what God could do with that? Who knows what God could do through you if we simply just come to a place where we cleanse all of the distractions and the impurities and just become empty vessels. Doesn't matter if you're wood or clay. Empty vessels and just say, okay, God, here I am. Do your thing. Do what you want through me. And my prayer is that if you do that, you will be entirely surprised with what God would do. Would you stand with me? I'd like to pray for us. Let's pray together. God, we are a bunch of wood and clay trash cans. sometimes we have these big hanging questions over our heads whether making a difference whether or not you're speaking or or doing anything but Lord I pray that no matter how ordinary we might feel that we would be reminded that, that you have created us with great purpose that you have designed a life for us that is no ordinary life when you get into the picture. So Lord, in this moment, forgive us for taking this life and doing what we want with it. Forgive us for going our own way. Purify and cleanse us, Lord, that we would be empty vessels dedicated for your special use. And Lord, let us be surprised. Let us have a sense of awe and wonder to see how you are working and and what you are doing in our lives. Lord, put away our own plans. Help us to cast our own agendas aside and let us just be available for you and for your Holy Spirit to work in, around, and through us. Lord, through you, all things are capable and possible. 
So we dedicate ourselves to you. We dedicate our church to you. We dedicate all things to you for your your use and for your purposes on this earth. And may you have the glory. We pray this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. People of God, whether you are ordinary or not, go in the assurance of God's purpose for your life and go in his strength knowing that it's his power that works through you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, go in his peace. Amen.